Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now. I'm your host, David Myers, and today I'm pleased to welcome Dorit Rice, who is a professor at the University of California Hastings School of Law, where she holds the James Edgar Hervey 50 Chair of Litigation. Professor Rice has achieved national prominence for her scholarship on administrative law, but in more recent years, she has become a ubiquitous presence in discussions about vaccine mandates, to which she brings sharp legal acumen. To the surprise of many of us, vaccine mandates have become a controversial and fraught subject, tapping into deep divides in American political culture and consciousness. How did this happen? What is the state of play today? And where are we headed? We're delighted to have Professor Rice with us today to work through these and other questions. Welcome to you, Professor Rice. Thanks for having me. So you've written prolifically about controversies over vaccine mandates, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the history of mandates. Uh, we know it's not a, they're not a recent phenomenon. Um, in a recent New York Times op-ed, Professor Wendy Parmet noted that George Washington required his soldiers to be inoculated against smallpox in the Revolutionary War, and that courts in the United States have upheld the right of state actors to mandate vaccinations. So what does the history look like to you? And who or what actors have the right to impose them as a legal matter? So vaccines mandate started almost at the same time as vaccines. England had a mandate for a while. In the United States, as you mentioned, uh, George Washington mandated inoculation, the precursor to vaccination for the Revolutionary Army during the war. And uh, in the United States itself, after its uh, creation, uh, the first vaccine mandate goes back to Massachusetts in 1809. School mandates started in the 1820s. Uh, they were not as widespread as they are now. Now every state has a school mandate, as does the uh, District of Columbia. But they were in existence from the 19th uh, uh, century, and they were challenged in courts pretty much from the start as well. As to who can require a vaccine, uh, it really varies. Up until now, the federal government has not required the vaccines. Uh, again, if we put aside the military, the military has always required vaccines. Uh, but states have required vaccines in a variety of contexts, and private actors have as well. So, for example, employers have been requiring vaccines in healthcare facilities at least since the 1990s. And some restaurants, for example, have uh, required hepatitis A vaccine in the context of outbreaks. So vaccine mandates are new. I would say that the scope is new as with many things with the COVID pandemic, it's not the, the thing itself that's new, but it's brought into sharp relief by the scope and scale of the pandemic. So can you tell us a little bit about the regulatory authority of the Center for, Centers for Disease Control? Um, they issue advisories from time to time and um, they're often taken as if they're law. Are, are, are they an actor who can impose mandates or what, what is actually their capacity to uh, enter this uh, terrain? So the Center for, Dise for Disease Prevention and Control has not ever imposed a vaccine mandate. I will address whether they can in a moment, but 
generally speaking, the role of the CDC in relation to vaccine is twofold. A, they provide guidance uh, related to vaccines, and B, they monitor vaccine safety. The guidance they provide is mostly through recommendations that are uh, overseen by the Advisory Committee on Immunization pra Practices. That's an expert committee with 15 experts and a consumer representative that discusses in meetings that last hours uh, the data around vaccines and they annually meet three times and review vaccines. During the COVID-19 pandemic, they met much more often, but they always meet three times and give recommendations, but they don't mandate. Uh, the other the thing that the CDC does is oversee vaccine safety, even without the committee's recommendation, uh, and that's an ongoing thing. Uh, however, the CDC may have some authority to mandate vaccines, uh, and that's under the same authority that led it, for example, to issue an order with uh, limiting cruise activity. Uh, Section 361 of the Public Health Service Act gives the CDC well, they, it gives the Surgeon General, but it was delegated to the CDC, the power to take measures to prevent disease uh, from entering the United States or being transmitted between states. That part can arguably be used, for example, for requiring vaccine for interstate travel. They're now using it to require masks, and the same logic could lead to requiring vaccine. But they have never used that part to require vaccines. And where lies the authority of private actors like restaurants uh, to impose mandates? It would seem to be a state function. Generally speaking, uh, private employers and, and private businesses get to set their own rules unless the state tells them otherwise. As private actors, they have the rights. They're the right bearers here. So if you're the employer, you have a right to set workplace rule. We could even say that you have an ethical duty to create a safe workplace so that maybe you have a duty to uh, impose vaccine mandates in some context. But you certainly have the right to impose health and safety conditions in the workplace. And as a business, you also have a right to impose conditions on customers. No shoes, no mask, no service, no vaccine or service. The same logic. So whereas some private actors like restaurants have sought to impose uh, uh, vaccine mandates or masking mandates, um, we have other private actors um, like churches that have sought to resist both vaccine and masking mandates. And one of the major sources of resistance to mandates has indeed come from various religious actors. Um, in fact, in our own state here in California, there was a court case, Tandem v. Newsom, uh, that sought to limit the number of people who could assemble in a private home for, for Bible study, which the Supreme Court overturned. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the role of religion and religious exemptions um, in uh, vaccine mandating before COVID-19? Yes, I want to start by saying that the vast majority of religious leaders before and during COVID-19 support public health measure and have, uh, for example, supported and encouraged use of vaccine. That's always been true. Uh, historically, to give one example, one of the controversies in vaccines that's related to religion has been the use of cell line descended from abortions from the 1960s in some vaccines. Um, the uh, cell lines are no longer the original cells, but some believers ask, is this too close a connection to abortion? And to give one example, the Catholic Church has said uh, very recently, initially their position was, it's not great, but if this is the only option, it's, it's more important to vaccinate children than the remote connection to the 1960s abortion. 
But more recently, they said the connection is so remote, it is not a barrier. I would say that use of cell line is something that maybe manufacturers should consider because it will be a, a question for some believers. And if it's avoidable, maybe it's better to avoid. However, um, most religions have supported vaccine and vaccine mandates for many, many decades. There were always a, sm a few small groups, usually groups that oppose modern medicine more generally, who also oppose vaccine use by their believers. Um, Interestingly, Christian scientists is not exactly one of them. Christian scientists certainly um, don't encourage vaccines, but in the 1920s, uh, Mary Baker Eddy said, if the law requires vaccine, then vaccinate and then pray. Uh, basically, follow the vaccine mandates. That was her guidance. So Christian science does not prohibit vaccines when there, are when there is a mandate. Uh, it has instructions that allow the believers to keep both. But there are small groups that don't. That said, I want to also mention that the standard we use for assessing religious exemption isn't does the church you belong to oppose vaccines. The standard we use, the goal of religious exemption is basically to prevent the believer from being caught between obeying a secular rule and violating their deeply held religious beliefs. So the standard is what are the believers deeply held religious beliefs? Whether or not a religious religion they belong to opposes vaccine is somewhat relevant because it can teach us something about sincerity, but it's not the standard. We can ask, if you're a Catholic and you're still opposing vaccines, even though the Pope supports them, are you being sincere or is there something else going on? But we can't say just because the Pope supports vaccine, you, the Catholic, have no potential religious claim because we're focusing on the belief of the believer. But that criterion of sincerity of belief seems absolutely impossible to uh, discern. And you make a point in a recent article on the recent Supreme Court decision regarding Maine man mandates in the state of Maine, which we'll talk about later, uh, that there's a difference between a medical exemption um, where you can actually vet the case at hand uh, using medical and scientific evidence and the religious exemption, which rests on this criterion of sincerity, sincerity of belief, which is as subjective of uh, a consideration as imaginable, no? It's about as subjective as you can imagine. And worse than that, is the sincerity criteria does three bad things. A, it requires states and employers to delve into people's beliefs, hearts, and minds, which can be incredibly intrusive. B, it reward, rewards good liars. C, it encourages an industry of people teaching others how to lie about this. So the sincerity criteria is a problem. On the other hand, we also don't want to have the state police uh, whether you're adhering to your religion because that makes the state, the state the agent of your organized religion. It's a tricky issue. There's no good way to give a, a religious exemption that uh, won't run into implementation problems, which is why one of the solutions, in my view, the better solution on this one is one of two extremes either offer no non-medical exemptions or offer an open-ended uh, non-medical exemption. Don't force people to say it about religion or lie about it, uh, but make it hard to get. Put in place procedural obstacles, such as you have to take a week-long course and then a quiz before you can get the exemption, or you'll be subject to other limits, other stringent limits, if you take the exemption. Uh, but there's no perfect solution here. Just a curious, an observation about the phenomenon of seeking religious exemptions. 
it seems to parallel in some way um, the kind of anti-establishment impulse in American political culture in general, given that most organized religion and religious leaders have come out strongly in support of vaccines. But you have this kind of undercurrent of dissent coming from the bottom up, presumably, in ways that really parallels American political culture in general, this sort of anti-establishmentarian impulse. I haven't thought about it this way, but I really like this uh, this uh, fra- framing because I think you're completely right. There is somewhat of a let's reward the person who's willing to buck the system and go against uh, established rule. Although there's just as big a current in American culture, and I'm sure you you, probably, you, you know about this, of a strong support for rule adherence. We kind of we have multiple uh, themes in our culture, and they don't always go together neatly. So, just generally, have mandates always been accompanied by dissent and controversy? Yes, there have always been resistance to mandates from the start, and the resistance parallels the anti-vaccine movement argument, and they're surprisingly consistent over time. The in the nineteenth century, the argument included, for example. Uh, one argument you heard was that it's a, if God intended someone to die from smallpox, then it was smallpox. Um, it's a sin to intervene and protect that person. You're undermining God's will. Um, we hear some of this in the natural uh, fallacy arguments today. If nature meant for someone to die, you shouldn't interfere and stop it. It's we sometimes people go as 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 far as saying it's uh, culling the herd. It's removing the weak. It's jarring, it's eugenistics, it's horrible, but you hear it. Uh, other arguments are about inserting foreign substances or uh, things that can harm you into the body, either from a direction of purity, this makes you impure, or from a, uh, from a direction of simply a yuck factor, or from a direction of this can be harmful. I would add that this these kinds of claims were a lot more convincing in the 19th century, because at the time, Smallpox, so the smallpox vaccine was given in a, in a very <laughs> problematic way. It basically involved scraping someone's uh, uh, smallpox uh, pustule or bringing material from animals, cutting a scratch on someone and putting that material in. At the time where we didn't understand hygiene any, uh, very well, that was a great way to insert all kinds of other things. And there were situations where someone who was vaccinated against smallpox ended with tetanus. So the risk was very real at the time. It's just that the risk of smallpox were much larger even at the time. Today, we have much higher sanitation standards and much more care in that. And the content of the vaccine is way more regulated. But it's the same argument. Vaccines have dangerous substance and uh, are dangerous. That's the argument you hear. And it's not any more well-funded today that well founded today than it was in the 19th century. It's helpful to excavate that history to make us aware of the fact that we're not the first and likely will not be the last to encounter this phenomenon. And nor for that matter, are we the first or the last who will likely encounter the phenomenon of what you call fake news. Um, in an article you wrote in, in 2018, you referred to the presence of fake news regarding vaccines well before the COVID-19 crisis. Um, in fact, going back to 2015, um, around the time of a measles outbreak, I believe. Um, uh, can you talk about um, uh, fake news as a specter in debates uh, over vaccine mandates uh, before COVID-19? 
I mean, we could also uh, trace it back to the 19th century if we really wanted. Some of the pamphlets about vaccination at the time had as much fake news as the things we hear today. Uh, and as you're saying, long before we got to COVID-19, uh, untrue claims about vaccines were prevalent. One of the best known examples is an article by British uh, gastroenterologist Andrew Wakefield in 1998, uh, which based on observation of 12 children argued that implied a link between MMR and autism. And later it was found out that the article was basically fraudulent, so that the children did not have the symptoms at the time described after the vaccine, that their, their, their biopsies were, in spite of what the article said, probably normal. Uh, for many of them. So uh, we've had untrue claims in the vaccine arena for a long time. In 2014, 2015, it came up again uh, with a conspiracy theory dubbed CDC whistleblower, in which anti-vaccine activists latched onto a real claim by a real CDC scientist uh, that was concerned about a relatively small study from 2004 uh, and argued that one a sub result in that study was uh, omitted un unjustifiably, and they turned it into vaccines actually cause autism, and the CDC is hiding the fact. So we have a long history, but it has exploded during COVID nineteen. I honestly think the claims have not changed. The anti vaccine storybook is the same as it was, which is the argument is diseases aren't so bad as you think. Vaccines are bad. Uh, there are alternatives to vaccine. There's a conspiracy to hide all this, and it's all about your civil rights. These are the claims we've been hearing before COVID-19, and we hear it now. What's different about the COVID-19 are two things. Uh, compared to the 19th century and the, even the 1990s, we have a lot more social media. So uh, people the, the information is coming at people from a lot more directions. Uh, and even people who would not normally look it up or uh, go for it, are exposed to it. So there's a bigger audience. And second, the pandemic has left us all vulnerable. Uh, the pandemic has overturned the world for most of us and shattered previous lives for many people. And many people were looking for information. Some of them were stuck home where they wouldn't have been previously. And with a lot more time to go online and look at things, uh, the combination of vulnerab vulnerability, people looking for information, and social media meant that a lot more people now are looking at this fake news and a lot more people are vulnerable enough to accept even claims that don't withstand even cursory scrutiny. There's actually a big literature that suggests that during times of uncertainty and fear and, and distress, we're more vulnerable to conspiracy theory. And I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. Yeah, I'm... I want to just uh, ask a kind of impossible question about vaccine skepticism. And I, I think it's helpful, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, to distinguish between um, the vaccine hesitant and anti-vaxxers. Uh, yes. But I want to think just for a minute about vaccine skeptics, um, purveyors of what we might call fake news, um, and impose upon you the impossible task, since we've dispensed with the sincerity of belief criterion for religious exemptions, to ask about sincerity of intent. Um, I mean, just anecdotally, um, unscientifically, is it your sense that people who purvey what we would call fake news, what some of us would call fake news about vaccines, believe it? Or rather that um, it's a political 
cudgel in, you know, a broader cultural war. I mean, it's kind of hard to distinguish between those two, but I wonder if you have any thoughts about this. I do. So first of all, there's a variety of people that are promoting fake news about vaccines and their motives aren't going to be the same across the, the people. For the people that I've been following for years, and then I'll add the newcomers which during the pandemic, which I think are a different breed. Uh, the people I've been following for years, which are the uh, leaders of the anti-vaccine movement, uh, I think for most of them, it's a mixture. I think many of them got into this because they either were always true believers or believed something. For example, some of them can't come from alternative medicine. Some of them come from families that have not vaccinated before. Some of them heard something that sounded convincing, convincing so they... I think there's a belief. However, uh, I also think that many of the leaders, although they believe the initial tenets that vaccines are bad, are more than willing to lie in the co- for the cause. So they believe vaccines are bad, but they're also very willing to uh, promote untrue claims if they will get other people to accept their creed. And I also think that they're very willing to uh, make money and fame in the service of what they believe. So I think for the traditional leaders of the anti-vaccine movement, it's a combination of real belief, scrupulous dishonesty, and a profit motive. I think it's all the three combined. For the newcomers, it's a little trickier. Some of them are making political capital. Uh, Tucker Carlson has played with anti-vaccine belief before. He's hosted uh, anti-vaccine activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, during measles pandemic and before COVID-19, and he's toyed with those beliefs before, but he's not gone as far as he has, and I suspect it at least in part because the pandemic has unfortunately been politicized, and this is one way to use it in the cultural wars, uh, even though the cost of it is going to be life enhanced. Uh, I think some of the coming other newcomers are coming in with a political uh, tint. With uh, Because the pandemic has been politicized, they're coming in from a political point of view, and that's new. And it's problematic because it makes these beliefs more palatable to a bigger audience. Uh, Politicizing public health. So public health is always political, but turning this partisan, turning a fight against the pandemic partisan is going to cost us. It's it's cost us a lot. It's going to keep costing us. I'm wondering what does this anti-vax sentiment tell you about the United States? is it, um, uh, it would seem to be a global phenomenon, a vaccine skepticism, but particularly potent and concentrated in the United States. A, is that true? And B, what does it tell you about America that it's so intense here? I don't know that it's um, true. I, I think the United States anti-vaccine movement has a flavor, but I see a lot of similarities among anti-vaccine groups across different countries. Here are some of the similarities. A, they often involve a mixture of people at the top that either believe they or themselves were injured by vaccines uh, or are looking to make a name for themselves uh, as a public figure, uh, or or both, by the way, or uh, are practitioners of alternative medicine. The people at the top and many of the people lower than that are highly passionate, highly motivated. Uh, The people at the top are uh, often willing to blatantly lie uh, the claims are often similar. Uh, vaccines are bad, and, and they use the same, the same kind of data to show vaccines are bad, mostly anecdote. Uh, there's a, a, a conspiracy of pharmaceutical companies, and they control governments 
to harm others. So I hear very similar claims and I see very similar behaviors often. The American variety has some of its own uh, special uh, characteristics. One is the religious tone of it. Uh, and this is, of course, America compared to whom? Compared to our peers in, uh, let's say, Europe or Japan, we're a very religious uh, society. Uh, so some of the claims have a religious theme that they wouldn't have in other uh, developed democracies. Um, some of the claims are phrased very much in, in language of rights. Other countries phrase it in languages of rights as well, but we uh, build on some of our history uh, with the anti-vaccine movement trying to co-opt claims of the civil rights as, in support of them. Uh, we have a history of... Um, uh, law enforcement leaning a little to the right, and it's colors who is susceptible to this. We're seeing higher resistance among police forces, for example, and correction officers, and then we're seeing in other sectors right. to our cost again. Um, so there are some unique features to the United States version of the anti-vaccine movement, but from the personnel, to uh, the arguments, we are a lot like anti-vaccine uh, movements in other countries. Also, up to the level of the uh, underlying violent rhetoric and potential for aggressive behavior. Mm -hmm. not, not pure violence. The anti-vaccine movement isn't yet where uh, some other movements are in terms of willingness to use physical violence, but certainly in terms of intense uh, rhetorical violence and willingness to make the life of opponents very bad. Yeah, I mean, you, it seems that we have present here sort of that rugged American libertarian spirit as well, um, which ironically, as you note, um, can be deeply rooted amongst people called upon to uphold the law, uh, like law enforcement personnel, who may have a healthy dose of that libertarian spirit, which is kind of ironic. Uh, but it seems that feature is distinctively American. Um, uh, or so it, so it seems to the to the naive observer. I, I think it is. And part of the issue is, I think we're at a place where we are starting to silo off into different sources of information with people who politically lean right, getting information from one set of sources and people who politically lean left or even center, getting them from another. And the problem is we're starting to get to a point where we're not working off the same reality. Uh, it's a lot harder to uh, agree on policy if your basic facts are different. And here, social media, as you suggest, played such an important role in sort of the fragmentation of knowledge, as we know it, sort of this tremendous epistemological um, revolution or disruption, whereby um, you, you go to the relatively limited news source that you want to hear um, without any sort of common, um, the golden age that people hark back to is Walter Cronkite on CBS News. So there are one or three sources of news, and now there are um, as many uh, sources of information as bloggers are in the world. Yeah. Um, so that fragmentation seems to um, foster um, the kind of conspiracy thinking that can fuel uh, uh, skepticism. Yes. Though I don't want to remind you that under the French Revolution, they used paper pamphlets to the same effect. Uh, so in, I think pre-pandemic, uh, 
it's unlikely to have happened, but during the crisis of the pandemic, I'm not sure that without social media, we wouldn't see pamphlet pamphlets doing so, at least some of the same thing. Just not as effectively, quickly, or divisively. Yes. Okay, so let's um, turn to where we are today. Um, just last week, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States rejected a request by healthcare workers in Maine uh, to overturn the state's vaccine mandate. And that came over the objection of three of the conservative justices of the court. And this was a kind of temporary um, decision um, uh, just uh, to hold off for another day when there could be a fuller vetting with briefing and uh, and arguments in court. Um, you've written about uh, this uh, decision by the Supreme Court. And I wonder if you could help us understand what, what was going on here. Yes, I'd like to start with a little bit of background, which is, since the 1990, the Supreme Court jurisprudence on this issue was that if you have a generally applicable neutral on its face rule, you don't have to give a religious exemption. For vaccine mandate, there's even an earlier jurisprudence that said you don't have to give a religious exemption because most of this was in the context of children mandate and those sit in a, at a place where the interests are especially strong. They combine the interests of the child from protecting from disease with the interest of the community in preventing spread. So um, until the beginning of the 2000s, it was clear to everyone that, uh, of the 2020, it was clear to everyone that the vaccine mandate does not have to have a religious exemption. And when, uh, when after California, Connecticut, New York, removed the religious exemption, anti-vaccine people, uh, activists tried to take it to court, the court said they don't have to give you a religious exemption. In, since October 2020, the Supreme Court has been tightening its religious freedom jurisprudence. It's been telling us we want to be more protective of religious freedom. The problem is that the way they've been doing it creates a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the way they've been doing it is through decision on what we call the shadow docket, which is the docket used to issue emergency decisions. Uh, those are decisions that are issued without full briefing of the case, without full decisions from the court either. So we don't have a, a thorough a analysis from the Supreme Court why it's going this way. We just know that they've struck down several COVID-19 measures against that, that have impacted religion. You give the example of Tandem versus Newsom, and that's an important example because the rule in Tandem versus Newsom was um, any gathering of over 10 people uh, is basically prohibited. So it wasn't focusing on religious gathering. You can't have a book club of over 10 people either. And the court still said, because you're allowing people to go to stores, this can stand. Many observers that looked at Tandon said, Tandon created the, they called it the favored nation doctrine. Uh, if you have any secular exceptions, you can't limit religion unless you meet the very high bar of strict scrutiny, unless you show that your measure is for a compelling interest and the least restrictive means for religion. That's a really high bar. So when New York and Maine required vaccines for healthcare workers without a religious exemption, it was clear this would be challenged. There have been other challenges based on religion, and the courts, most courts have upheld vaccine mandates, but a few courts on religious grounds said uh, you have to have a religious exemption. For example, in New York, the, uh, a similar mandate to Maine, a mandate for healthcare workers without a religious exemption, was subject to four different lawsuits. 
three of them did not give um, a, a stay for the mandate while this was litigated. One of them did, and the one that did was the one that made the news, by the way. Uh, the headlines are courts stayed the mandate, ignoring the fact that three other courts did not. Um, so when Maine was challenged, it was a question, where, which way will the courts go? The district court in Maine refused to give a stay. The First Circuit, in a very carefully written, thoughtful decision on religious freedom, refused to give a stay. So they appealed to the Supreme Court, and I admit there was uncertainty. Which way will the court go? And the decision isn't particularly reassuring. Why isn't it? While six judges, six justices said we're not going to stay the mandate, two of them wrote a concurrence, a, an opinion that said uh, this is coming to us on an emergency uh, docket, on an emergency request for a temporary uh, stay. It hasn't been fully briefed. And these are new questions in, in tension with existing jurisprudence. So we are not ready to stay this now, but the two justices are at least implying that they may consider the case when it comes up uh, through the normal process differently. So we may have out of the six, two justices that may go either way. We don't know which way they'll go when it's fully briefed. This is in tension with previous jurisprudence that upheld vaccine mandates without a religious exemption. It raises a question mark. Even more concerning, the dissents, the three justices in the dissent did a number of things that raised a lot of questions. One is, uh, Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the dissent, said, I'm willing to assume for now that this is a compelling interest, but I'm not sure how long I'll go with that assumption. What's this? You're talking about the pandemic itself. Yes, the pandemic, yes. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, over a thousand Americans are still dying every day from COVID-19 but he's willing to assume it's a compelling interest, implying that he's not sure that it is. If a pandemic that's killing over a thousand people a day is not a compelling interest, what's a compelling interest? That's highly concerning. Further, his decision strongly suggested that the way he's looking at it is the existence of medical exemptions uh, means that you have to consider a religious exemption in his view. And he counts it as one-to-one. -one. He's saying, if someone with a medical exemption is unvaccinated, the risk from them is exactly the same as the risk from someone with religious exemption. The problem with that is that it ignores the real differences between the two types of exemption. First, numerically, there are a lot more religious exemption always than medical by an order of magnitude. Uh, there's usually a hundred times more religious exemptions, even in normal times. Second, it ignores the difficulty of enforcing both kinds of exemption. You can have objective criteria for medical exemption. It's, as we said earlier, religious exemption are inherently subjective and there aren't good ways to enforce them. So the dissent is highly concerning, especially if we can pull over the two justices that said we're not ready to stop it yet. And especially given the arc of the discourse of religious freedom. Um, you, you, I think, mentioned October 2020. We can go back to the appointment by... President Trump of three justices who tilted the balance of the court. We can go back, I think it's 1995, when then Chief Justice William Rehnquist um, questioned the legitimacy of the guiding metaphor of a wall of separation between religion and state, uh, suggesting that, you know, somehow that was a, uh, you know, sort of a mistaken historical proposition and religion should be invited much more robustly into the public sphere. Um, it, 
is there was there a tipping point um, for you? Uh, do, do you can you see a tipping point in um, um, American jurisprudence um, at which point religion became sort of the defining criterion as it seems to be uh, today? I really think the change was October 2020 with the change of justices. Until then, so protection of religious freedom by the court has increased over the past decade. Um, notable milestones are, for example, the case of Hobby Lobby, where for the first time the court found that the private company can have religious beliefs. A, mas- a masterpiece cake shop where the court found that statements by a commission can show hostility to religion and therefore reco- a, a decision based on them requires strict scrutiny. Uh, but until October 2020, there was a majority to prevent, uh, to support uh, public health measures, even if they impact religion without religious exemption. Uh, and I would add that um, and, uh, historically, the court has uh, always treated safety as something that religion can be limited for, even if judges, justices support religion have gone there. So this is new. Okay. So um, as we move towards the end of our time, I want to sort of ask, where do you think we should go? And here I'm going to read from an article you wrote in 2019 in Science Magazine. Um, This is in response to the 2018 measles outbreak. Uh, You wrote, states could implement workplace mandates for those working with vulnerable, vulnerable populations, such as healthcare workers, teachers in schools, and providers of daycare. States could impose tort liabilities, Tort liability, civil law damages for harm when unexcused refusal to vaccine leads to individuals becoming infected unnecessarily or worse. States could permit teenagers to consent to vaccinations without parental approval. Um, I'm wondering, in light of the 2020 presidential election and the ferocious division uh, it uh, revealed in this country, um, whether you think that kind of heavy-handed approach could work, should be set in place, or uh, replaced with some other mechanism? I think it's the problem we're going to run into is that the same politicization we're seeing is going to lead to different approaches in different states. And the state that most desperately needs to have their vaccine rates go up are the states where this kind of approach is a political non-starter. It's not that it won't work. It, that it's not going to happen. It's only to be put in place to work. Uh, vaccine mandates work. Uh, stronger policies do work. They may generate resistance, but they also work. But they're not going to happen. Uh, the first, we need to solve a number of our problems. The first one is uh, we need to find a way to reverse the politicization of the pandemic. And I don't have any easy answers on that. Second, we need to work in teaching our children to be better consuming consumers of online information. Uh, that's a longer term thing, but the reality is we'll all be reading internet for a long time. This information is going to be there. Even if we solve the anti-vaccine disinformation problem, there's going to be disinformation all over and we need to learn to sort it out for the long term for our, our, our safety and our uh, ability to make good decisions. Uh, but, but the shorter term problem is uh, we need to depoliticize this pandemic and uh, work on educating people. And I'm not sure we can. I mean, we're seeing 
I'm going to use Florida because I think it's fair to do that. Florida has an incredibly bad COVID experience in the last few months. And you're still hearing the governor say things that are going to exacerbate that. So if your own people dying isn't enough to make you step away from politicizing the pandemic and work hard to stop it, what will? Right. Yeah, I just wonder what part of that is structural. At one level, it seems to me that's a version of what I might call medical federalism, which arrogates to the states the right to decide for themselves. Um, So you might say, well, then empower the federal government to impose more uh, more harshly or, or, or more unequivocally, um, which A, risks uh, tremendous political pushback, and B, has to contend with the Supreme Court of the United States, right? Which and, is and C, federal- it has to contend with a potential uh, science denier at the top of the United States, which we know can happen. Uh, do you really want to give that power to someone who will be willing to deny the next pandemic? So I, I don't think that taking power from the state would be a long-term solution. Uh, we may have to accept, and we had to, to accept it in other areas, a natural experience in which some states back public health and some don't for 20 years until we come around to consensus. I hope we don't, but that may end, end up being what happens. Okay, so as a final question, uh, let me ask you, as a scholar of the law, um, what has COVID-19 taught you about the law and uh, the rule of law and the play of law uh, in um, U.S. society in the early 21st century? I think it's the same lesson that people took from COVID-19 in other areas, that there's no certainty, that things change and can change really fast in really unpredictable ways when a big hammer comes crashing down. Well, this has been a most fascinating discussion. Thank you, Professor Dorit Rice, for joining us on this episode of Then and Now. And thanks to our listeners, as always. Have a good and safe day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Maya Ferdman, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.